Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Short Term Show special episode series on the high country of North Carolina. So we are going to be doing a 10 episode deep dive into everything you need to know about buying a short term rental in this market. And we do have a few supplemental materials for y'all to check out over on our website. So any information that you need on pricing of short-term rental properties in this market, you can find it on our website at theshorttermshop.com. You can also find income data, thanks to our friends over at airdna.com. You can find that on our website, again, at theshorttermshop.com. If you guys are interested in buying a short-term rental property with a short-term shop agent in this market, you can email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com or you can join our Facebook group. We've created an amazing community with over 50,000 people where we talk about all short-term rental investing all day, every day. And you can join that. The name of the group is the same title as my book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. And we look forward to seeing you over there. Thanks, y'all. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Short Term Show special market series episodes. Um, I totally just said that wrong, but whatever. You guys have been with us long enough that you know what I meant. And uh, this one's focusing on financing in the high country. So we have several familiar faces as usual to talk about this. First, we have Garrett. Garrett, give us a brief intro of yourself, even though you've been on every single episode of this one already. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Avery, uh, great to be here. My name is Garrett. I am on uh, Avery Carl's team, uh, brokering brokering team in the high country, North Carolina. I'm kind of the lone star agent up here. Um, I have been helping people buy short-term rentals for the last almost year and a half up here now. So I've seen a lot. Uh, I've also lived up here for almost on and off the last decade and went to school up here. So I've seen the area develop and change over the last um, almost decade now. So happy to be on and, and talking, talking financing this morning. Awesome. And next we have the CEO of the mortgage shop, Brenna Carls, not Carl. We are not related. Uh, and Brenna, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey guys, I'm Brenna. If you haven't met me yet, um, like Avery said, CEO and the co-founder of the mortgage shop. So we specifically specialize in everything you guys are looking into. So short-term rental, long-term rental and vacation home loans. So I'm here to answer, you know, any of the, the financing questions about the area, um, specific financing questions and, and things of that nature. All right, thanks. So we're going to start at the beginning in case people are kind of jumping in uh, to this episode specifically. Maybe you haven't looked at financing yet. And so we're going to just kind of start at the beginning with some definitions. So there are several types of loans you can get when you're buying a short-term rental in this market. There's conventional, there's DSCR or a portfolio loan. Those are technically two different things, but a DSCR is a type of portfolio loan or true commercial financing. So first, let's talk about a few bullet points that are fall under the umbrella of conventional financing. So Brenna, can you explain to us how a person is qualified for a loan and what uh, what factors determine what they qualify for when it comes to conventional? Yeah, so conventional loans um, are known as full doc loans. And what that means is full document, right? So we go off of your personal income and personal debt. So we pull your credit report, we pull the debts in from your credit report. Then we look at your income. We, we average that out for the, the month, look at your assets. And that's how we qualify for you for the loan. So credit score, debt to income ratio, and how much assets you have to make sure you have the cover for down payment, closing costs, and things of that nature. So that's uh, how conventional loans work. 
Also, that's how jumbo loans work too. So a lot of people think that conventional means, you know, just, you know, what Fannie and, and Freddie allow for the conforming loan limit, but anything over that conforming loan limit is considered jumbo. And those are also considered full doc loans as well, or goes off of your personal debt to income ratio assets and credit score. So your debt to income ratio is <clears throat> your monthly payments that you have to make on your debt versus your income. So as shown as a ratio. Yeah. So it's just debt divided by your monthly income. Okay. Awesome. And you qualify for a conventional loan based on that, your credit score and a few other things. So it's, you are limited in a conventional loan by a, how much money you make and then B how much debt you have on top of that. So you could make a million dollars a year, but have too much debt and still not be able to qualify. Right. Right. And then it also, you know, Fannie and Freddie allow you to have up to 10 max financed residential properties. So if you are experienced in this and you're getting to that number, then, you know, that's what conventional that cap is, is 10 financed properties. So anything over that, you know, you'd have to go into another type of loan like DSCR or things like Avery mentioned. Right. So if I can get 10, can I get 10 in my name and my husband can get 10 in his name? Or if I get 10, then he automatically has 10. How does that work? Yeah. So that's why when, when we talk to clients, it's like, what's your long-term goal? All right, let's back it up. Make sure it meets your short-term goal because you can get 10 finance properties in your name. And then your husband can get 10 finance properties in his name. So you just grew your portfolio from 10 to 20 financed properties. If you are on the loan together, though, then that is one finance property for each of you, not half and half. It is one for each of you. And that mortgage payment would 100% count against each of you if you went your separate ways and, and did another property by yourself or something like that. So that's why we always try to say, okay, if you're wanting to expand your portfolio as quickly as possible, let's see if you can qualify for this loan on your own. Your partner can be on title. You can come up to, with whatever agreement you need to come up with on that. And then the next one, let's see if they can um, get the loan in their name and then you be on that title. So you're expanding your portfolio uh, while you're cash flowing on multiple properties as opposed to capping yourself at that 10, that magic number 10. Gotcha. So if I can qualify on my own, I can get 10. My husband has to qualify on his own to get 10. Um, we can't just, we can't use my income to qualify him or his income to qualify me. We have to qualify separately. And if we go on the loan together, that counts as one against each of us. So if we have both of our names on all 10, then we're done. But if we can do it separately, then we can get 20 for our household. So that's a pretty cool hack. But I think a lot of people, uh, get too caught up in putting both names on it for right. no reason, or maybe they don't know. And, um, and then they cap themselves prematurely. And the goal is guys, think, as a, Oh, <clears throat> go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say to add on that. I think maybe one of the reason people, people do that in general, and it depends on the state is, um, you know, the, who's going to get the house when, if one of them dies or something happens to them where, a lot of times that is all dependent on how it's deeded. And mm -hmm. for instance, in North Carolina, if I'm on the title and I'm married and it's just me on the loan, if I die just because of law, my property goes to my spouse anyway. So it's not always, I think some people can get confused on, Hey, me and my wife need to be on this loan. So we both own the property when that's really all about tenancy and a completely different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's true too. And I think the goal is... I have is, a question. Oh, I have a question as far as conventional, Brenna. What what happened? What does it look like if you do own property 
uh, and they are short-term rentals, are is the income from those rental properties able to offset the quote debt, or is that something that is does not apply in short term? Yeah. So for short-term rentals, like let's say you close on the property, you can use what's known as proposed rental income on that deal itself. But after you close it, obviously it wouldn't be proposed anymore. You're showing actual rental income. So for short-term rentals, it's usually filed on a Schedule E. It can be filed on other forms, but most of the time you see it on a Schedule E. And after you file that, you're allowed to use that rental income to offset your mortgage payment or your property debt on that specific property. So that is with the short-term rentals, guys, you do have to wait until you file that tax return to show that rental income that you made on it. For long-term rentals, you are allowed to use a lease agreement in place of the tax return when you file it. So yeah, definitely. You're supposed to um, report all income earned to uh, the IRS. So you actually um, you actually would have to use it. And so when it comes to the type of loan that you choose, and we're going to get to explaining the other ones in a minute, but conventional loans are always going to be the easiest ones to find. So, you know, you can walk into any bank, mortgage broker, et cetera, and be able to find a conventional loan. Now you are going to be the most limited by your own debt to income ratio with conventional loans, but they're always going to be the easiest to get. They're typically always going to have the lowest interest rates and um, just be the overall easiest to do. Now, the goal as real estate investors is to max out your conventional loans and then you have to move on to other types. But I think a lot of investors get caught up in trying to use cool terms and like, oh, well, I'm going to have to get a DSCR because I'm buying a short-term rental and that's what people do. Well, people all have different circumstances. And those people who you're hearing from might have already capped out their 10 conventionals, or maybe they've got um, an income situation where they need to get DSCR rather than conventional. We'll get to that in a minute. But in any case, if you can get the conventional loan, I always say go for it because it's going to be the easiest and the cheapest. And it's 30-year fixed, most importantly. 30-year fixed is is what is what you want, um, not a floating or, or an arm. So um, one, one thing that I do want to hit on too is a lot of people mistakenly think that the minimum down payment for a conventional investment loan is 20 or 25%. And it is 25% on a multifamily. So if it's a duplex, yes. But the actual minimum on a conventional investment loan is 15% down. So that's a really good piece of knowledge to know. I didn't know that when I started. And it, it really does make a difference, that extra 5% if you're uh, trying to get started and running your cash on cash return and things like that. Yeah, and we I just want to point out for conventional guys, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, their guidelines, a lot of us will just underwrite strictly to their guidelines. But there's some, a lot of banks are more conservative. And what will happen is they have what's called overlays or what's known as rules that they've put in place on top of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So let's say you're doing... um you know, a second home loan, or you're wanting to put title in an LLC after you close, some banks will say you can't do that. However, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac actually allow you to put your um, title in an LLC after you close if you want to. So you always want to ask, you know, for example, a second home, your primary intent is to vacation there first, and then you can rent it out according to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But there's some banks that say, you cannot rent out your second home at all. You actually have to write on a piece of paper saying that you won't rent it out at all. So um, I just want to preface, if these banks are telling you that or these these lenders are telling you that, then you just want to make sure you, you want to pick one that specializes in short-term rentals and long-term rentals and these vacation home loans because 
if they have that rule on top of it, it's going to make it really hard for you to prosper with that company to get those loans. Yeah, so that's a really good call out is that the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac regulations are the same across all banks and lenders and mortgage companies, but those companies might have company specific rules. So I've seen I've seen them say, oh, you you have to be in it for six months. And that's not the Fannie Mae guideline. That's just the rule at that bank. And then people are like, well, you're not right because my bank says this. I'm like, well, ask another bank. And another thing that I want to hit on on the 10% down vacation home loans is Guys, the, you really do have to intend to be using that property as a vacation home first and just renting it out when you're not there. Um, and there have been, you know, there are instances where a lot of people, uh, I would call it more of like a lifestyle investment where I really, really want to have a house in Breckenridge. Terrible example because Breckenridge has bad regulations, but say I really want to have a house in Breckenridge. And I want to be able to rent it out when I'm not using it so that I'm not having to really come out of pocket for its expenses. So maybe it's paying for itself. Um, you know, and a lot of times you can cash flow really well on a second home that you're just renting out when you're not using it. But what I want you guys to avoid is over the course of 2020, 2021, 2022, that type of loan really, really started being abused by investors. And it is a form of mortgage fraud if you are doing anything other than just using it yourself and renting it out when you're not there. I've never heard of anybody getting in trouble for that, but I don't want any of our listeners to be the first one. So just keep that in mind. And my rule of thumb is like, if you're running spreadsheets on it, it's probably an investment. You should probably just go ahead and do the 15% down. Uh, that's my spiel on vacation home loans. Uh, let's talk about jumbo before we move into DSCR loans. So what is a jumbo loan and what is a conforming loan? What's the difference between those two things? So conforming loan is just based off of what Fannie Mae or the FHFA comes out with for the year of the conforming loan limit. So for 2023, for example, the conforming loan limit is up to 726.2. So remember that's the loan amount. So 726,200, your purchase price would be higher. Anything over that 726.2 is considered jumbo. A lot of people, um, misconstrue information and they think jumbos are harder to get than conventional. It's literally the same. We still underwrite to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for jumbo. It's just the pricing or what mean like what I mean by that is interest rates may be a little bit higher or the cost for the interest rate may be a little bit higher for jumbo as opposed to a um, conforming sized loan limit. Okay. So and when you say the jumbo limit, that's the loan amount, right? So what is the purchase price on that? Because I think a lot of people hear that loan amount and they go, oh, that's as high as I can go. But actually that's the loan amount, not the total purchase price. Right. So let me do the math really quick. It would be a purchase price of 907750 um, would be your jumbo purchase if you're doing like an investment with 20% down. Um, if you're doing a second home, it's still 10% down. Purchase price for that would be around 806,888. Um, if you're just putting 10% down to get to that conforming loan limit, anything over again, that 726,2 loan amount is jumbo. And then you can go up. A lot of people mostly go up to that $2 million loan amount cap, which is quite a bit of money in a house. So yeah, it's up to that $2 million loan limit for jumbo. All right. And I mean, even 900 is, is that's quite a bit of house that you can, that you can still go up to. So, 
without it being a jumbo. So that's that's pretty awesome. Um, jumbo, is there any difference in interest rate or qualifications or how to, is, is there anything we need to know about that? So qualifications is pretty much the same. So a lot of your banks will only go up to 43% debt to income ratio, but we actually go up to 45. So you, you want to try to get that 45 mark, anything over that. Most jumbos don't go over 45% debt to income ratio versus conventional. You can, if Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac approve you, you can go up to that 50% debt to income ratio um, for conventional. And then that's basically the only difference. The interest rates are pretty much the same. However, the cost for the interest rate or the charge for the interest rate may be a little bit higher than uh, conventional. And what I mean by that is when you see the interest rate, um, Fannie Mae put in place what's known as LLPAs or loan level pricing adjustments. And all that means is when you see an interest rate, guys, you're generally going to see a cost for that interest rate by it. So it's going to say like 7.625 with one point, which means one point means 1% times your loan amount. So that's what I mean for the charge. So you may feel you may see a little bit higher of a charge for that interest rate for a jumbo as opposed to a conventional size loan amount. Okay. And what's what's a point? Let's do that definition really quick. Yeah. So 1% times the loan amount. So is that so a a point is a percentage of a percent. So 50 points is a half a percent, right? Am I doing that math right? So if you go off a basis point, so what you're saying is you're saying a half a point or a half a percent. So usually when I quote to borrowers, I'm like, let's say let's say that the 7.625 rate shows two points. That just means 2% of the loan amount. So 2% times the loan amount. What you were saying is like, let's say it's a half a point, then you just say half a point or what's known as 50 basis points. I don't want to confuse you guys too much times the loan amount. So half a point times the loan amount. Okay. So there's a difference between a point and a basis point. Yeah. But for, for layman's terms, we just try to quote in points to everybody in the mortgage world. We usually use basis points to talk to each other. But when we talk to clients, we'll usually tell you what the actual percentage is that you'd have to pay. So you won't get confused. Okay. Yeah. So when point, you're paying points, points, a dollar, a point, a dollar, a cent, a, a, a basis point is a cent. Great job. Great job, Garrett. That's ex that was like, I could not, I was about to ask a clarifying question and you just nailed the making it easy to understand. <laughs> they make Thank it you. confusing by also using points, but yeah, basis yeah. sense, of, you know, a dollar, it's a point. Okay. Awesome. Moving on from that. Uh, last couple things on conventional loans. Can I get a conventional loan in my LLC or does it have to be my personal name? No, you have to get it in your personal name. But again, remember Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac allow you to uh, do what's known as quit claiming your title to an LLC. What that means is you usually close the loan and title in your personal name. And then if you have an LLC, you create an LLC and you want to put the title in that. then the title company would help you um, or the title attorney would help you put that title into your LLC, what's known as quit claiming. So you are allowed to do that after you close. You just can't for conventional loans. You cannot close in within that LLC when you close. And I think the next common question on this would be, well, can't the bank, I read somewhere that the bank could call my loan if I quit claim it to an LLC later. So that's why you always want to check. So banks, again, have those rules on top of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. If they're underwriting strictly to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There is no rule like that. Some banks will 
have that rule that they say they're going to call the note due, but a lot of people don't, but they see that what's known as a due on sale clause. That doesn't, that doesn't count for this. A due on sale clause came about in 2007, eight, when we had what was known as straw buyers and straw buyers would, let's say, you know, I, my friend wanted to ha get a property. Let's say Garrett wanted to get a property, but he had a 500 credit score. He doesn't have a 500 credit score, but let's just say he did. And he's like, I can't qualify, you know? Um, so I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll go get the loan for you. And then, so I go get the primary residence loan or whatever it is for my friend, close it, act like I'm going to live there. And then I have no intention of paying the mortgage. Well, 500 credit score friend over here, the bank calls me like three months later and is like, hey, we're going to have to start foreclosure proceedings. You haven't paid your mortgage. And I'd say, oh, no, 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 I got that loan for my friend. He was supposed to pay it. So instead of going through foreclosure proceedings that can take, you know, quite a bit of time and money, they put in place what's known as a due on sale clause, which means if they found out anything was happening like that, they could call the note due immediately instead of having to go through those long court proceedings. So a lot of people get that confused with, you know, if I put the title in my LLC, they're going to do a due on sale clause. Most of the time they won't. However, you definitely do want to double check the rules to see if the banks have any overlays or rules on top of Fannie Mae, what they allow. All right. So many rules. So, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say some, I mean, I guess circling it back into how this kind of all can apply in the high country. I know uh, all of this can be super helpful for just lending in general. Um, there's definitely going to be uh, in my area, and I know it can apply to some areas of the Smokies, there's going to be some areas where getting conventional loans is going to be a little bit tricky, um, not necessarily from uh, qualification purposes from a buyer, but just from a geographic standpoint or the property type. Uh, for instance, you know, we have uh, an entry level starting point up here is going to be condos. A lot of these condos are going to be non-warrantable condo tells, which for layman's term, basically conventional lenders basically say this sucks. We don't want to lend on them. <laughs> um, and so that is something to think about when you're talking, you know, there's non-warrantable condos and there's also condo tells. And so, uh, before, when you get pre-approved, whoever that is with, make sure you're asking your lender, Hey, can you lend, if you're looking at a condo for, for say, uh, which most of my clients in that lower price point are, Hey, um, do you guys lend on non-warrantable condo tells? So turn the TikTok camera on. There's your clip right there. Um, <laughs> non-warrantable condo tells. Uh, as far as some other areas up here, and I know we won't be able to get into it. Um, you know, there are some things that are marked rural, which I know is probably the same way in the Smokies. That necessarily is not necessarily a uh, stay away for conventional, but that's something to think about as well when you're talking to lenders. I think that it's important to. Uh, to pick a lender uh, that has maybe done loans in that area, just so again, the rural is a perfect example of that. It's not a deal breaker, but as I, I have found that it's a lot of things, it's nice that a lender is can, can anticipate that. And so it, it's not going to delay closing in any particular way because they know all the potential things that could, that could come up. Um, the condos is a perfect example. Hey, yeah, my lender can do non-warrantable condos. Well, three weeks in, oh, I didn't know this is a condo tell non-warrantable can't do that. You know, so trying to be as clear as possible with your agent to figure out exactly what it is that you uh, are buying and potential issues, connecting your agent with your lender um, so they can kind of have a clear stream of communication to prohibit any uh, sort of delays or any reason to, to kill the deal. Yeah. And let's separate out what's the what is a non-warrantable condo first? And then what's the difference between just a non-warrantable condo and a non-warrantable condo tell? 
non-warrantable condo tails are all condo tails are always going to be non-warrantable so that's why you heard Garrett say those two together but there are things just called non-warrantable condos non-warrantable condos are generally deemed non-warrantable in the areas we specialize in because there are more second home and investment units than there are primary residence units non-warrantable condos can be deemed non-warrantable for other things like if the HOA is in current litigation where they're the ones being sued upon or let's say a hurricane came and did damage, it would be deemed non-warrantable until that condo was repaired. Condo tells is exactly what it sounds like, right? It acts and operates as a hotel. You go in, they can hand you a key card to every single unit. So if you own a property or a, con a unit in a condo tell, everybody and their mom that works at that place can have access to your unit versus, you know, doing a door code saying, you know, the last four digits of the code is your phone number or the last four digits of your phone number is the code. And that way you have access of going into that unit. So generally condo tells just do a key card, kind of like a hotel or they have, you know, like amenities, like it's a resort, like a hotel. Um, but that's usually the difference between condo tells. The best example of condo tells I give um, and Garrett, you may have a lot there, but the ones I give are like the Miami ones on the beach where you pull up, there's like ballet, you go in, there's a lobby desk person and they're handing you a key card. They've got like the little luggage carts that they can offer to help you with to your room, kind of like a hotel. Um, mm -hmm. But you also may have, you know, a few of those in your area as well. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm scared of Miami. So I, I, I have not been down to South Florida, but I, uh, yeah, typically I tell people uh, up here, all the condo hotels, if there's any sort of full-time staff that is on site, you know, during business hours or a front desk or somebody that works at the property, it's not always about the access there's, you can still put a smart wall, a Yale, you know, slodge on code on your lock. Um, as long as the front desk has access and keys. So it, it typically is, if there's a front desk or if there's a full-time staff in some capacity, it is, going to be a condo hotel and we do have those up here um and they are popular with investors and majority of them are you know yeah they are owned by uh investors and second home people for in the majority and then rural for conventional if you're wanting to do the pros and cons of like when we get into dscr rural for conventional isn't an issue i mean you can close rural all day however let's say that property is in the middle of nowhere and there's no comps for comparables properties to look at within you know that three to five mile radius and the appraisers have to go out 15 to 20 miles then that's when the um, your realtor would come in and, and kind of be able to let you guys know that and be like hey you know we may have trouble finding comps on this one i'm going to give these to the appraiser etc um i don't know if you want to talk on that garrett at all but i mean rural is fine for conventional now dscr which is known as debt service coverage ratio some some investors for that loan don't like rural but there's some that don't care and they, they're completely fine with it like conventional yeah i i um i'm not sure exactly what products do or don't i have clients that have used dscr loans i will also say that 95 percent of the houses up here are rural um and it's the biggest problem with real estate agents and the re what reason that things are priced is because there's hard to find comps for anything up here because there's no just standalone neighborhoods. Uh, there's very, uh, if it's not a condo, you're really, there's no two houses that are alike. So um, I will say again, another thing to get upstream about with your lender um, to anticipate before you're purchasing a property. But I do know that 95% of the property up here is, is going to be in that marked rural um, where people are going outside four to five miles to, to do, to, to run comps. 
Okay, so before we move on to a different loan type, what are a few things that might, and we kind of touched on some of them, what are a few things that we haven't mentioned that might keep a property from being able to be conventionally financed in this market? Uh, flood, I don't know. A floodplain doesn't really, uh, Brandon might be able to help me here. A floodplain doesn't really, I'm just trying to think things that could happen up here. A floodplain, um, what about things being on a historic? Um, these are kind of more of a questions, I guess, for Brennan. What about if something's on like the historic monuments or like a list of historic buildings? Is that? No, I mean you can do that. It's just obviously the condition of the property has to be viable to to lend on, right? Like, so if the property doesn't have air conditioning, you, a conventional won't lend on it. No, I'm sorry, not air conditioning. If the property doesn't have heat. Uh, conventional okay. can't land on it. But, I was going to say, if that was the case, that's a, that's a bummer up here because there's yeah, no. not a lot of air conditioning up here. There's, you can do window units all day, but for heat, it's like, that's the thing that's like really like you have to have that to be able to have a home that's livable. You also have to have a um, bathroom and a stove. I don't know what the deal with like stove is weird for me, but that's what they say that it has to have a working stove in there before uh, the appraiser can say, you know, that's a, a viable living space. But that Historic doesn't doesn't really matter on that. Um, floodplains don't matter for conventional. I would say unique properties, which I don't know if you've got those. Like I've had a lot of questions about treehouse homes and stuff yeah. like that. But yeah, conventional won't touch that. Conventional won't touch barn dominiums. Anything that's just really you know, container homes, I get questions on. They don't do that. Right. Um, right. So yeah. Yeah. So that's something that uh, we definitely, it's growing more and more popular. We definitely have. Uh, but um, it's something to think about before you buy. There's a lot of different cool, you know, whether it be a unique roundhouse or um, some form of property. The other thing that we've mentioned, log cabins earlier, there there is a difference between a true log cabin and log cabin siding, um, which can sometimes be a little bit tricky or, or hard to find by just looking at um, pictures. Um, and so that's another thing to look about. Think about, um, I could be a little bit tricky. I've helped clients buy true log cabins. I own a true log cabin. Um, so it's not going to be impossible, but again, another thing to, uh, to think about, uh, when you're talking to your lender. And true logs are okay for conventional. Some, you know, DSCR lenders don't like that true log. I won't go into huge details on what the difference is, but basically in layman's terms, like the same log on the outside and the inside, or it's got chinking, which is like that white, you, I'll give you like the old example of the old cabins. It's got like the chinking in the middle, which is like the white stuff, you know, um, kind of like that Abraham Lincoln cabin. But conventional is fine for those types of cabins. Log, look, it just like there's like half a piece of a log on the outside and it's not really that those in the inside. That's what the log look is. Both of those are fine for for conventional. All right. So true log is okay for conventional because I see some lenders get get tripped up on that. And I think we should hit on the the whole local lender thing. So I actually saw in one of our Facebook groups yesterday, uh, someone said, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to buy a condo somewhere. It's non-warrantable. And I, my agent is really trying to get me to work with a local lender, but I have a really good relationship with a national lender who says they can do non-warrantable condos. Will I really lose the deal if I don't use a local lender? And the answer is not, it depends. Like you're not going to lose a deal just because you're not using a local lender, but there are things that local ones will know 
about certain buildings because they've done it before. So I wouldn't necessarily say they have to be physically local, but they do need to at least have done enough deals in that market of that asset class type to know, you know, where, where the alligators are in that deal. So what do you think about that, Brenna? So, yeah, I mean, it is what it is, I guess. Like, I'm not sure. What do you think, Garrett, about your area? I I couldn't agree. I, I, I mean, my, my thoughts are that, uh, piggybacking on what Avery said, I think there are certain buildings in certain areas that, that are super, um, I know I mentioned the condos. That's going to be the biggest thing. Um, I yeah. tell my people, hey, I know you have a lender that you are attached to by the hip. Make sure that you are aware that they know exactly what this is and what this isn't. Um, because I think there's a lot of miscommunication sometimes with um, a client and their lender versus maybe a lender and an agent. Um, right. I have certain areas. There are certain condos where a listing agent, and I don't know if it's legal or not, but it happens where a listing agent will not, they will tell their seller not to accept a financed offer and let it, unless it is with one of two banks wow. in the area um, for a particular condo complex, because then that, that, that agent themselves has done enough deals to know that these are the only two people in town that can blend on these certain buildings. Right. Um, I think when we get into kind of single family homes, it can, there can be a little bit more flexibility with um, using a variety of different lenders. I still think it is important uh, for a lender to have done some work and some deals in that area, regardless of if they live in Idaho or they live in North Carolina. Um, so I, I do think that, um, it's important. I think as we move on, I know we are going to talk about commercial loans. I think we move on to something like that, you know, that can be a little bit more helpful um, for local. I mean, overall, I think, and Brenna can correct me if I'm wrong here. I think that some of the rules with local banks uh, don't exist in national banks. And so there can be a lot of head turning. That's not necessarily illegal, but it's just, Hey, this lender doesn't have to play by the same rules as a big national bank. And so, you know, certain things that can apply in North Carolina, that could be a big you know, issue to a big national bank, a local bank's going to be like, that's not a big deal because we live here. We know we, we do these properties. And so that can be one thing that can be uh, a potential advantage uh, for, to a local lender. Um, and so I, I, I always would recommend, Hey, it doesn't, it doesn't cost you anything to shop around with a couple right. of different lenders, not to say that you have to get pre-approved with everybody and get your credit checked 116,000 times, but um, it, it definitely can be beneficial to look um, locally for, yeah, like anything else, do you want to bring your home inspector who inspects houses at the beach, you know, that you absolutely love? Are you going to take him to the mountains to inspect your house? Sure. There's going to be certain things that are helpful that he knows like bathrooms and interiors that are apply everywhere, but then there's going to be other things that he's never seen before because he inspects homes at the beach. So that's my, my two cents worth. Yeah. The reason why I want you to talk on it, because there's two different levels, guys, there's different, it depends on the type of property you're looking at. Right. And so and technically any bank or whatever can lend on a single family residence, a normal single family residence. So, you know, let's give an example. Somebody's like, well, I got a lower interest rate from the Bank of Kentucky. Well, Bank of Kentucky doesn't know our area. One, it's not, you know, this bank that we know, they don't know our area. They're not in our area. They're not doing those types of loans. They're probably not even familiar with the types of cabins we have, depending on the area that that bank is in. And so that's why the realtors will say, you know, you want to work with somebody local because we know how these guidelines work. We know the ins and outs. And you could possibly mess up your deal with a bank. You know, a lot of the, the bigger the bank guys, the more conservative they get, right? Because it's like they have these rules in place that they have to follow. They're 
large national banks. Um, and then when your realtor says, hey, let's say you're like looking at a non-warrantable condo and you know that there's like these local banks, they're small local banks, they don't have to answer to that big corporate mentality, you know, person, um, then just listen to them because they know what deals will be complicated to do, like a non-warrantable condo. So if there's like two lenders or whatever in the area that can do them, then like be like, okay, these are probably who I need to go with. You're definitely welcome to shop anywhere you want to see who can do that loan. But please listen to, you know, your local lenders in that area or your realtors that are working with you for the best advice on for that certain type of property who would be the best to go with. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's just like an agent. Make sure when you're go when you're looking at lenders, make sure you're going with a lender who does deals often of the asset class that you're trying to buy in the market that you're trying to buy in. Um, and that go, you know, that really just goes for any anybody, any vendor that you're hiring. All right. So let's move on to DSCR loans. So these kind of they've been around for long-term rentals for a long time. They kind of came on the scene about two years ago, maybe a little a little longer than that. Uh, but about two years ago is when they started getting really popular. So uh, these are not conventional loans and they are not based on your personal debt to income ratio. They are, you're qualified based on what the property will make. Uh, so DSCR stands for debt service coverage ratio. And Brenna, what are the typical ratios that we're seeing right now? I know it was one-to-one -one for a while, but I think things have tightened up. No, it's usually one-to-one. -one. You'll get a better, you know, rate quote if it's over a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, so there's just different tiers, kind of like credit scores. But what that means is if your mortgage payment is $3,000, then that proposed rental income coming back needs to be at $3,000 or more. But like if you have a higher than a one-to-one -one ratio, like if, you know, the mortgage payment is 3000 but the income came back at 4000 then the rate might be a little better for you or the cost for that rate might be a little better for you. Okay. So you what the debt service coverage ratio is, is the lender needs to see that the property will make as much as the mortgage payment each month. So if the mortgage payment is $2,000 a month, they need to know that the house is going to make $2,000 a month. Um, these are typically 20% down. There was a 15% down product floating around for a while in the thick of things, but that's gone away as far as I know. Uh, it might it might come back again one day, but as of right now, it's 20 to 25% down. Typically, you can have as many of them as you want and as many financed properties as you want on DSCR, unlike conventional. And you can also get them in your LLC directly. So you don't have to um, get it in your personal name and quit claim later. Now, everybody at this point is like, oh, hell yeah, sign me up for DSCR. This is amazing. And then they hear the interest rate and then they're like, what the fuck, man? Well, the bank is giving you a loan based on the idea that you're going to do a good enough job managing it to make enough money to pay them back. So that's a lot of risk for a lender. And they're going to mitigate that by charging you a higher interest rate. So the interest rate on DSCR is a negative. It's more than more than conventional. And then a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of DSCR products have uh, prepayment penalties of one year, five years. It depends. Brenna, uh, what's the typical prepayment penalty time? And also how much does that cost usually? So most of the time it's a five year. If you do see a prepayment penalty, you can buy down your, you know, you can buy with points to get just a three year prepayment penalty, but in number wise to cash flow, it doesn't make sense for you. So five years. So there's different 
there are DSCR loans that we have that do not have prepayment penalties, but a lot of them do. So let's look at what that means. So it just means the interest you would have accrued in those five years, if you refinance or sell before five years, then you would pay that amount of interest. Usually it's a tier down. So it's like a scale down five, four, three, two, one, which means if you sell or refinance in the first year of owning it, you're going to be paying at closing five years of interest for that property. If you sell or refinance in your second year, you're going to pay four years. Third year, you're going to pay three years, two years, you know, all that fun stuff. So that's what that means. It's kind of like a trickle down, you know, prepaid. So they kind of have you for those first five years. Um, and then interest rates are a little higher for that. And the reason why she's saying, you know, why Avery says, you know, conventional, try to get conventional first is because, yes, this is a cool option. It's an easier option to qualify for. However, if you can qualify for conventional loans, like off of your personal debt and personal income, those have better terms. Those don't have prepayment penalties. They have better interest rates um, and things of that nature. But if you can't, then obviously DSCR is for you. Or if you're wanting to do it, you know, in an LLC that you have a partnership with, then definitely you can do it in DSCR as well. Awesome. Uh, anything else we need to know? So can DSCR uh, finance a non-warrantable condo? Yes. So generally, again, that DSCR, though, is 20% down. Um, so non-warrantable condos all day, that's fine. When you get to a condo tail, it's usually 25 to 30% down, depending on the investor that's doing that loan. Gotcha. For DSCR. All right. So these are a type of portfolio loan or sometimes it's called a non-QM loan. What does that mean? Because I think a lot of people are like, oh, what they, they just don't know what a portfolio loan or they hear the word non-QM and they have no idea what that means. Yeah. So it's just a business purpose loan, which means it's in for investment properties only. It can't be for your primary residence, guys. Um, a non-QM loan means a non-qualified mortgage loan. All conventional loans are qualified mortgages, which means they have to go off of the laws and regulation put in place by the CFPB in the States. And so that debt to income ratio, um, there's more things like you can't pay so much in points for your interest rate for conventional. DSCR is more of like that commercial, you know, asset-based type of loan. So it doesn't go off of any of those types of guidelines. It can kind of go off of what it wants to go off of. And so it's just a little, it's just, you can just chalk it up to like a commercial loan that doesn't go off of those guidelines that conventional do. And these, are these as widespread and easy to find as a conventional loan is? Um, I'd say now they're easier to find. However, I'm not saying that um, all lenders have their poop in a group with them because you've got to really know how to do them to get them closed on time. If not, you're going to not meet your closing date. So they are easier to find now. However, you want to work with somebody that does them day in and day out to get your loan closed on time. Gotcha. So they're not as widespread as conventional. You can't just walk in anywhere to get them, but you, you can find them pretty easily. Now let's talk about the last type of financing, which is true commercial financing. So this is going to be the hardest to find. Uh, typically, it's going to have to be a local bank that is a small local bank that's either local to you personally or local to the property itself. So if you live in Texas and you're trying to buy a house in the high country with Garrett in North Carolina, 
and you find a commercial bank in Ohio, they're probably not going to lend on that property because they want to be local to you or the property because they want to build a relationship. They're going to want you to put some of your money in their bank. They're going to want to know that you're buying more than one. So they're, if you go to them and say, hey, I think I want to buy this property and this is the only one I'm going to buy, they're probably not going to finance you because it's not building a relationship. Uh, it is also, well, before I get to the qualification, so um, commercial loans are similar to DSCR loans in that it's they are not you don't get qualified based on your own personal debt to income you don't have to get it in your personal name and you can have as many as you want and you can um you know get it right in your LLC where it's difficult is that you it, it's kind of like on a movie so a loan officer doesn't just like type some stuff into a computer system and qualify you they actually in most cases have to do what's called committee where the loan officer will you'll have to get all this information from you like your business plan your experience and they take it to a room full of people in suits usually and they say here are we going to finance this person and they all make a decision so you do have to have your ducks in a row a little bit in terms of they're, they're going to want to see a pfs which is a personal financial statement and a business plan and kind of a roadmap of what you plan to do with the relationship that you're starting with them. So it can be more difficult to find and get done. But if you can find that, then you found a really good thing. A lot of commercial banks are not into short-term rentals yet. I think that's going to change as time goes on. I mean, because they're into hotels. So why not short-term rentals? But as of right now, it's it's kind of difficult to find local commercial banks that will do short-term rentals, but they're out there. Uh, so something to keep in mind, I probably wouldn't mess with this until you are through your 10 conventionals or for some reason you, uh, your DTI is too high and you can't get another conventional for a while, but you're ready to buy something, uh, then commercials can, can be really work really well. Oh, you know what we forgot to talk about? I was about to talk about terms. So Brenna, let's go through the terms of conventional DSCR and then commercial. So conventional, we talked about typically 30 year fixed in most cases. Uh, what about DSCR and commercial? Yeah, so conventional is 30 year amortized loan. DSCR is usually 30 years. However, they do have this 40 year where you can do the first 10 years as interest only. And then it would amortize into that 30 year loan. Um, adjustable rate mortgages are the same. It's just dependent upon when your your interest rate will adjust, but it's the same, like it's still a 30-year amortized loan, unless you do that 40-year interest only for the first 10 years. All right. And so what is what is an ARM exactly? ARM is an adjustable rate mortgage. So it's not like, you know, I give you an interest rate today. I'm like, are you want to lock in? You're like, yeah. And then we lock that rate and you're good. An adjustable rate is we can lock that rate in, but there's terms on it of when it can adjust how, and how much it can adjust and what your maximum interest rate can be on that arm. So, for example, you know, a seven six arm uh, means that it would be fixed for the first seven years and after that it would go to market rate and it can adjust every six months. So depending on there's just multiple different arms. So always ask your lender, OK, what does this arm mean? What's the max my interest rate can be? How often can it change? And things like that, as opposed to locking in your interest rate and not worrying about it anymore and it not changing. Gotcha. So DSCRs can be 30-year fixed, right? You said that? Yes. Yes, okay. they can. 
And typically commercials, I, I haven't seen a commercial 30 year fixed. It, those are typically arms or like other Tip, arrangements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, typically, um, I mean, I can speak for a lot of commercial. I, I personally use commercial products in the mountains and some other properties and have a really good relationship with the commercial lender. Kind of piggybacking on, on what you said, Avery, is at the end of the day, uh, you know, I know we talked about a little bit with the local at the end of the day, you're, you're convincing a couple guys in, in suits to lend you money. So, you know, sure. You don't necessarily, it's not all about your debt to income, but yeah, you are showing a PFS and a personal financial statement. So if you don't have a pot to piss in and you don't have any money, well, that could actually impact, you know, regardless of the deal that could impact them, you know, loaning versus if you own, you never bought a property here, but you own 15 short-term rentals and you're able to put that into a really cool, sexy portfolio and put it in a, you know, folder. And these people in suits are looking at, Hey, these people are legit. They, uh, they, you know, this, they do this for a living, you know, that can help them lend on a product. As far as the terms, most commercial products are 20 years with a five-year arm. Um, that, that's a typical, you know, again, so what that means is, Hey, you know, five, you know, you got a 20 year mortgage. It's going to be 5% right now in five years, depending on what the interest rate is, you're going to have a new interest rate and it's going to be a half a basis or a half a percentage point above what the wall street prime is or whatever the interest rate is at that point. That's what the new, your new interest rate is, is going to be for the next five years until you reach that 20 year max. And so, um, yeah, it's basically your, taking a gamble on, Hey, is this property going to cash flow in the same way if the interest rates go up or go down? But an arm is just basically being, Hey, in five years, we're going to reassess the rate essentially. And, uh, commercial products are typically going to be that, um, they, they can do, they can use short-term rental income. Um, uh, again, the other thing that commercial products can do in a very, very lame case, we don't have to get into it crazy when they do with hotels is small business loans. Um, if you can kind of convince someone that you're starting a small business, you know, with, um, that can be a cool creative option. If you have six container houses on a property, they're not going to be able to finance conventionally, like we talked about, but if you can convince someone that you're starting a small business and almost a, a hotel, so to speak, um, you can, um, you can pursue that as well. So I, I think commercial, um, again, it can be a little bit trickier and maybe not for the first time investor, but it definitely can be a really good option for, um, for properties up here. All right. So I think that's a pretty good synopsis of commercial. So let's talk about creative financing. So to me, that means both owner financing and real buzzword lately, subject to financing. So Garrett, what's owner financing? Yeah. Owner financing is in layman's term, the seller is the bank. So instead of you going to a bank, you make your own terms. There's no rules on what the terms are. Typically, they can be close to what the bank would be. And you're going to a seller being like, hey, will you be the bank? I'm going to pay you interest. I'm going to pay your money over five years, 10 years, 30 years, whatever that is. And you know, will you do that? Now, is that possible? Everybody wants to do that because the interest rates are through the roof. Um, is it possible? Sure. It's possible everywhere. If it's not, if it wasn't, you people wouldn't be seeing it on the internet, sitting on Instagram and everyone and their mother's doing it. One thing that people don't understand is that, um, a lot of times, majority of the time, almost all the time, the first box to check with seller financing is that seller, they, they better own that property free and clear. And what that means is they don't have a mortgage on it because, um, if, if they are going to sell the property, no lender, no conventional lender, no commercial lender wants to be in a second position, which what that means is they don't want to have a loan. They don't want to be the, they don't want the seller to be the main lender and then them now be the secondary lender. So there's a couple of different ways to do that. My first question when I, you know, people are like, Hey, can they sell or finance is 
figure out if they own it outright. Now your agent can do that. In my area, you're, you don't need an agent to do that. You can, it's public record. You can look at the real tax sheet and see, Hey, they have $140,000 mortgage on this property. And so unless they pay that off in full, they cannot sell or finance. You can cross that through the roof. Um, but yeah. And, and, and the other thing that comes with seller financing is similar to commercial. You're convincing a seller that they should lend you the property. You know, you sure they might ask for credit. A lot of times they're going to ask for credit. They're going to, at the end of the day, you're, you know, the, the, the fact that you're going to try to just be some person from California and some old lady who's owned the property for 50 years is just going to sell or finance you the property. Sure, it's possible, but it takes a little bit of convincing. A lot of times it's really helpful with, you know, maybe it's someone, a friend of a friend or you're a neighbor or, um, yeah, there's a, it's, it's a really cool creative option, um, but it is de- there are definitely things and bullet points to consider when you're thinking about doing that and uh, boxes that you have to check. And it is ne- definitely not a one size fits all um, option. How's that? Yeah, that's great. That's great. And owner financing. And a, a lot of people ask about it. And you're right. The main thing is that it has to be owned free and clear. They can't sell the property when it has a loan on it in that way. So owner financing really only works when the property is owned free and clear, which not many are, uh, especially in the short-term rental world. So just keep that in mind when you're looking for owner financing deals, it has to be a pretty specific set of circumstances. So um, let's talk about subject two. What's subject two? Subject two essentially is um, assuming somebody's mortgage. So if I am going to buy your house, Avery, and you're like, Hey, I own 140,000 bucks. This is my mortgage payments. I locked in a pretty sweet rate, 3%, you name it. I bought it three years ago. And I'm saying, Hey, can I just like assume your mortgage and I'll just pay your mortgage payment. And however, whatever price we agree, I'll pay the difference in cash. Um, again, the biggest thing was subject to, in my opinion, is that it's a trust between the buyer and the seller. If, if, you know, if for one thing, and this is, I guess, a conversation. This is another separate question for Brenna. But the first thing that you have to think about is, is that loan assumable? A lot of these conventional banks um, will say, hey, you can't assume this loan. It's not, you know, so you're, you're, I don't know the actual legal terms, but you could be breaking the law assuming someone's mortgage or not actually doing it. So that's the first box to check. Um, and, and the big one is, hey, why would somebody say, if, if you can't pay your mortgage, well, now it's back on the person who owns the property or the initial person. And so why would they trust you to, you know, take on their mortgage that they don't know you, they don't know who you are. And so, um, again, that can be a little bit tricky. I see that happening a lot less in, in my area, uh, because of that. Um, and yeah, assumable mortgage, you got to make sure that that loan is assumable. Um, and if it is, that's what it is. Typically, you're still going to have to pay the cash difference. So, on an assumable mortgage, if I'm buying your house for five hundred thousand bucks and you owe two hundred, okay, I can assume your mortgage for two hundred. But where am I going to get that three hundred thousand? Um, you know, is that going to come from a bank? Well, a bank doesn't want to be a second position, so you might have to come out with three hundred thousand in cash and then assume the two hundred thousand dollar note. So, typically, the people that are doing that are not the people that I have 300,000 in cash sitting around that are uh, wanting to do that. So again, something to consider um, an assumable mortgage. I would not, I'm not going to sit here and say it's impossible. Um, there are creative ways for everyone to get paid, for real estate agents to get paid. I think that's another thing that people are like, oh, you're just getting the real estate. You're knocking out the real estate agent. There are ways to make that happen where everyone gets paid and is compensated. Um, but I would just encourage anybody that is going to get into seller finance or subject to, to 
educate themselves, read some books, um, and really kind of be prepared instead of just relying onto their, you know, I have some, I have some people that'll be like, Hey, can you ask them if they do seller financing? I'm like, okay. And I'll get back and be like, yeah, they'd be interested. What are you thinking? And they'll be like, well, what do you think? What, what should the terms be? I'm like, okay, so you asked me about seller financing, but you don't even know what you want. And so get educated on what you're actually, you know, a lot of times, you know, the more educated you are, it's not my job to give you a, a lesson on seller financing or tell you what your terms should be because I'm not underwriting your deal. So, you know, it's a, it's a big buzzword that's getting thrown around. It can be really helpful and really useful for, but learn what it is, learn how it works. And um, when you do go into a property or find somebody who wants to seller finance, you know, learn what a balloon is, learn what terms are, all of those things. So um, that's my long-winded answer on subject two and owner financing. I think you did a really good job. Um, is there anything else that we need to talk about in terms of financing in the high country specifically heck, that heck we yeah. haven't covered? We missed the biggest one, cash, <laughs> homie. Um, cash. Oh, I well, think that enough people aren't talking about, cash. but again, <laughs> I think, I don't think people are talking about enough right now with cash. There's a lot of people that, um, I know this isn't a lending, um, spiel, but yeah, there's a lot of people that have a lot of cash that have been sitting on the bank or sitting at whatever. Well, now in at least my area is a great time for cash. There's a lot of old school, old owners that want to quit closing with cash and you can get a deal. Um, and your cash sitting in a rental property or any sort of investment is making a lot more money than sitting in the bank with inflation. Again, this isn't a finance lesson, but um, yeah, I have a lot of buyers and a lot of clients um, that are were worried about the interest rates when they were super high, or the com how the competitive things were when the interest rates were super low. Well, now it's not as competitive. And so take your cash and move in. There's a lot of properties up here where um, I think cash could be helpful. So, Yeah, I think, I think cash would be helpful on basically anything. <laughs> That's right. All right. Cool. Well, uh, what else? Have we missed anything? Brenna, anything we need to cover? Um, I think just, you know, I think we talked about prepayment penalties with DSCR. There are no prepayment penalties for conventional. So like if you did have the cash, like Garrett said, but you know, you don't want to spit, take all your cash out right then, you can get a loan for it if that interest rate works for you, if that monthly mortgage payment works for you. And then you can pay it off if you want, you know, in, within the next year, if you're cash flowing and you have that money coming in, you're like, okay, I'm done with this property. Let me, you know, pay it off and maybe, you know, get a, home equity line of credit down the line. We didn't talk about home equity lines of credit, so we can talk about that if you want. Um, oh yeah, we should talk about that. So if you have equity in one of your properties and you don't have like actual cash, but you have equity, you can definitely do a HELOC or what's known as a HELOAN, um, which is a second lien mortgage on your property to get that equity out to use it to get another property. So there are, HELOCs are generally only on primary and second homes. And then he loans can be primary, second home, and investment property. The difference is a home equity line of credit is a revolving line of credit, kind of like a credit card. You use it and you can pay it off and you use it again. That's a home equity line of credit or a HELOC. A he loan is the same, except it's not revolving. So it's like a one and done. However, if you have, let's say you refinanced your property or you bought your property two years ago and you got a 2% interest rate and you don't want to touch that full refinance, you can do a home equity line of credit or a home equity loan to get the cash out that you need. Now you're going to have a higher interest rate on that cash out that you're getting, but you're not touching that first mortgage that you have. So that's a good option if you want to pull cash out of your properties without doing a full cash out refinance to not touch that lower interest rate. 
So just to summary, I guess, so I'm I'm understanding right. So a home equity loan is essentially saying, well, first off, it's it's the first H means home. So again, it has to be your primary home or your second home. It's basically a bank saying, hey, you bought this house for X amount. Now it's worth this amount. So you got some equity. You have you, you, you the house is worth something if you sell it. Well, we're going to take this equity and we're going to lend on it when you want to. You don't have to pull it out now, but just basically know when you need money to buy whatever you want we have this money. And as you pull it out from us, you're going to pay interest on it. You're not paying anything on it until you pull it out. Versus a he loan is basically saying, hey, you have this equity, call it, you paid 450 for a house. Now the house is worth 500 because we got it appraised. You got 50,000 in equity minus whatever, whatever in this example. Now we're just going to give you a $50,000 loan. So it's basically a second mortgage. And now you're, whether you take do anything with the 50 grand or not, you're automatically paying interest. So I, I thinking out loud, it sounds like you know something like a HELOC. If you know, hey, I have fifty thousand in equity, and I'm going to use all of this when I pull it off. Well, a HELOC loan might be you know doable. Versus if I have a home, if I have a primary home, and I want to have a home equity line just in case I need a new roof or something half fixes, or I don't need this money now, a home equity line is going to be a little bit more attractive because you're not paying interest on it and you're pulling it out as you need it. Um, but it sounds like the moral of the story is you can't necessarily as much as I would want to pull a home equity line out of all of my properties, it has to be either a second home or a primary loan. Um, so if you're pulling equity out of majority of properties called DSCR and not a second home, um, it's going to come in the form of a he loan. Yes. So he loan guys, a lot of banks will not do a he loan or they won't do a he lock at all on an investment property. So we can do a he loan and that's pretty popular because actually uh, the loan to value is also higher on a he loan. So for a HELOC, let's say, for example, you want to do a HELOC on your second home loan or your second home, you can only get up to 80% loan to value on a HELOC as opposed to a HE loan. You know, it's a one and done, but you can get up to 90% loan to value on a HE loan for a second home. Cool. I think it's super important just to yeah talk to your talk to your lender, talk to other lenders of what their, the option is. Yeah. I know we mentioned prepayment. That's super important. I think because there's a lot of people right now they're like, hey, I'm I'm fine. I'll, I'll just refinance in you know two years when the rates go down. Awesome. It, it's definitely a great option. I but I think there's depending on what product before you buy that house, make sure hey there's not going to be a refinance penalty. I think on some of the DSCR loans there is, and so hey this DR, DSCR rate is super high. I'll just refinance if the rates drop in two years. Well, you can do that, um, but making sure you know hey there's there might be a pre prepayment penalty if you decide to refinance or pay back the loan, et cetera. Um, which again another thing just to get upstream about and uh, talk about with your lender. And I also want to say, if you're going to do that kind of stuff, taking out equity of properties, like don't over leverage yourself. Um, there's a lot to be said for, you know, being conservative about it. I mean, if you need $100,000 and you've got 500 in equity, okay, like that doesn't bother me. But I see a lot of people like refinancing themselves to, you know, by the skin of their teeth. And I don't think that that's wise, even, you know, in any market, uh, you don't want to get so over leveraged that you've built a house of cards that if one property doesn't perform, then all of them come tumbling down. So yeah. just make sure that you're running your numbers and you're conservative when you're doing that kind of thing. And one of the things we didn't talk about with a home equity loan, a HELOC is 100%, most 100% of the time, that's going to be an adjustable rate circling back to what we're talking about. So for instance, a year and a half ago, if you took a home equity loan out on your property to buy another rental property, and it was tied up in that at 3%, well, now it's an adjustable rate. Now it could be five, six, seven, eight, nine percent 9%. And um, now that property might not cash flow because that adjustable rate. And so, yeah, looking at 
I, I, I think that it's great. It's a great option for short-term cash, um, or a home, you know, but, uh, you're absolutely right. Thinking about, um, locking it up long-term can be, uh, can be a little bit risque. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for your time and your knowledge on this. And listeners, if you want to buy a house with Garrett, email us at agents at the short term shop.com. If you want to get a loan from the mortgage shop with Brenna, email Brenna at mortgage shop.co. So Brenna at mortgage shop.co. Yes. And that's mortgage shop, not the mortgage shop.co. We were late to the domain game on that. Um, also, if you guys just have more questions about the market, feel free to join one of our weekly office hours calls at strquestions.com or join our Facebook group at Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth on Facebook. You can find it pretty easily. Thanks, guys.